The Start On Demand. On demand. What was first thought to be a hate crime is now potentially a hoax. Winnipeg police are accusing the owners of a restaurant on Corridon of staging a hate crime and have laid charges. The Forks is getting ready to open a massive patio for the summer, complete with beer and wine. Speaking of the Forks, there's a really cool event happening there this weekend with Thrive Thrift Shop teaming up with Fashion Revolution Winnipeg for a clothing swap. And a controversial billboard is raising eyebrows in Winnipeg, while the person behind the billboards is hoping to raise something else. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Thursday, April 25th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. And let's just get right into it because Jeff said it in his newscast. A lot of Winnipeggers feeling shock and outrage at this bizarre twist. Yeah, I felt sick to my stomach when it came out yesterday just because, um, first of all, it raises so many questions about what was going on and what would be the potential motive for this alleged uh, staged hate crime and and why would this have been happening and then when I went looking at some of the comments people were making I was like oh well now some of some hate is actually coming out because people are mad they're saying things and so what was so great last week is we stood up as a community and said we are not going to stand for this kind of hate and then we're hearing from police that they don't believe that this hate crime happened and that's caused other people to come out and say some really truly horrible things and so I overall hope we rise above and I don't I don't know if we're capable of that right now well sometimes it is the conversation that comes after the revelations that is most bothersome I know when we had the conversation with our uh, friends uh, with regards to uh, the whiteout party and whether or not that should be changed because uh, certain people were feeling uncomfortable with that name and we gave uh, an opportunity for that group to suggest that they were uncomfortable with that. And I was more bothered by the reaction to someone's expression of their own feelings. Not that they just didn't like it, but the words they were Correct. using and the names they were calling her. And how her. derogatory and how quickly things escalated and how quickly things go from this era of conciliation, this era and air of of trying to get along and to to feel better about something tragic that's happened in our community. And you're right, Loren, the the language is escalating uh, quickly to make you really realize very quickly that we we, we still have major differences and we still have a, a problem in terms of expressing ourselves satisfactorily. So we'll have lots to discuss on that this morning, including in our very next segment. Also, we're going to talk about A billboard you may have seen driving through the city. You may have looked up and seen a billboard that reads Sensational Serena and wondered what's up with that. Is that what I think it is? Am I in Vegas? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Walking down the street. Do they still have the guys who do the slap the cards and then hand them out? You betcha. Anybody who's been to Vegas knows what I'm talking about. And if you've not been, then you'll know exactly what we're talking about when you get there. But, uh, yeah, that's something you're used to seeing in Las Vegas, but not in Winnipeg. Not at all. And she was here yesterday. Sensational Serena visited Richard and Julie on the news at 4.09. So if you want to hear that, go to the audio vault at cjob.com. We're going to play some of that conversation at 7.45. But 
Apparently the billboards are legit. Completely legal. Uh, there was some wrangling and even a name change that Serena had to accommodate in order to get approval. So what was so the original name? She, uh, Sensual Serena, is sort of her, the way she's been marketing herself uh, since she's been a licensed a- escort for about a decade now. And the billboard now says Sensational Serena, Winnipeg's professional companion. Correct. So the language is important as it pertains to those billboards and whether or not they're acceptable for public display. So we'll walk you through the process a little bit with Serena, Julie, and Richard later on this morning and uh, get your reaction to these billboards. Are are they bothersome? Are they no big deal? Are they a sign of the times? Or are they uh, a sign that Winnipeg is losing a little bit of its innocence? Well, let's. so we're talking about uh, an escort and there's the allegations of or perception that that might mean something else. Is that what we're saying? Uh, you Not can say we, that. What, what Winnipeggers are? <laughs> yes, of course. There's a, I'm just trying to get to what we're. There's a there's a perc- there's a there, there's a the way the service the services are marketed, and there's a way that people perceive what that uh, might be. Mean. What exactly that means behind closed doors. So we'll get into that at 7:45, and we're also going to discuss today something that is about to happen at the Forks, which has you, Greg, very excited. You sent an email yesterday saying, this is awesome! It is awesome. Uh, One more, you know, it's on the flip side, right? Uh, We're going to have that conversation about how comfortable are we about licensed escorts advertising themselves, and then on the flip side, I'm going to come out and say, hey, we should be able to drink more alcohol in public <laughs> in different, at different times and uh, different locations. So the Forks is, is embracing the success of the common, and if you've not been to the Forks in the last 18 months or so, do yourself a favor, get down there. The food court has been completely transformed. It's called the common now. You can get wine, you can get beer, and they're going to be taking the common and essentially expanding it outside uh, to take advantage of the popularity of the common and also to take advantage of uh, the fact that a popular restaurant that used to run a, a patio down at the Forks won't be around and the fact that we like to combine sunshine well, with beer and wine. from April, I mean, from a week ago, two weeks ago, as soon as the temperature basically went past four. Sure. You know, you sit outside and you're thinking, man, I should, should we get some beers and sit on the no. deck? And it's still, you still got a snow pile in the backyard and <laughs> ice cold hanging from the roof and you're wrapped in a blanket, but you're like, spring is here. <laughs> so... I, I get it. I get where they're going. Give me a lawn chair and I'll stick my beer right in what's left <laughs> of, of that snowbank snow yeah. to keep it cold. Well, I went, I just went for a walk yesterday and walked down to the forks and I wanted, just wanted to see how high the river was. So I just walked down the stairs and you could see like the, the stuff sort of poking out of the water where a month ago mm-hmm. it was way more shallow and way the, the the ground was way below with my feet and I felt kind of dumb as I'm standing there just sort of with my hands and my hips looking out at the water because there were people sitting all along on tables in the bank and I thought well wouldn't that be nice? that's actually a really nice patio spot so right. it's cool to see the forks embracing that I totally agree. And uh, we're going to ask the question, is it time for us to relax some of our other liquor laws? Or we mentioned Las Vegas, lots of cities around the United States with regard to, and Europe, Anywhere you go in Europe, you, I mean, you don't see it because it's so, it's allowed. And so it's not like it suddenly becomes people drinking anywhere. But if you wanted to, in many European cities, go to a store. First of all, you can buy alcohol in any store or almost any store. You can grab a, a little bottle of wine, go sit 
in the common area or in a patch of grass, have some cheese, have some wine, sit outside, whatever is the greatest view, and enjoy yourself. And it's no big deal. And so I'm, I, I think it's worth a conversation for sure about should we just maybe say like we've got all these really cool spots if we could make them a bit more. I don't want to say Vegasy, but just fun. Allow for a little more fun. I like Vegasy. <laughs> if we could make Winnipeg more Vegasy. Vegasy. There, let's add. Let's get the. I think the word swole got added to the dictionary That's right. recently. So let's, let's get add Vegasy. Yeah. yeah. The owners of that Winnipeg cafe, originally believed to be the target of a hate crime, have now been charged with staging that crime. The call concerning an assault, vandalism, and anti-Semitic graffiti at Burmax Cafe first came into police last Thursday, so one week ago tonight. And it was initially described by police as one of the worst hate crimes they've seen to date in Winnipeg. But after a lengthy investigation that included officers from General Patrol, major crime, forensics, and a hate crime officer, the police chief said they had reached a different conclusion. Over 25 officers have invested nearly a thousand hours through a busy holiday weekend trying to bring this investigation to a close. In the end... We found evidence of a crime. It just wasn't a hate crime. These individuals have been charged. Charges are being laid as we speak. And they will appear in court to account for themselves later in May. Charged with public mischief are Alexander Berent, Oksana Berent, and Maxine Berent. The woman who reported being assaulted is one of the suspects. Now, Chief Smy said they came to this conclusion through a combination of video and forensic evidence, as well as interviews with the suspects. There have been other hate crimes reported at that court and cafe over the past year. Police would only say yesterday that those reports will now be part of an ongoing investigation. We have reached out to the accused for comment. Chief Smy says he's hugely disappointed and angry at the alleged actions. In doing so, they have allowed cynicism to creep into this discussion. Cynicism that trivializes genuine victims of hate. Cynicism that risks reinforcing stereotypes that the Jewish community here locally and throughout the world have fought hard to dispel. Now, one of the positives, if we can, in fact, use that word, out of the original story is how the community rallies. Winnipeggers taking a stand against hate, a local church, even organizing a multi-faith rally that was supposed to be held tonight. It has now been cancelled, and if you go to the cafe's Facebook page, support has turned to outrage. Ran Ukashi is with Benai Brith and says they hope this doesn't prevent people from reporting hate crimes. Uh, it's a quite a shocking, uh, a shocking development. We're very surprised by this. Um, you know, of course, um, if the allegations are true, this would be a huge slap in the face, not only to the Jewish community and to the general community, which express so much support, but to those who really come forward with, with experiences of anti-Semitism who report to us on a daily basis and, and have, uh, have suffered real discrimination. So this is, this is very much sort of a betrayal of the public trust. Um, it makes hard work, the work for us at B'nai B'rith Canada and other human rights organizations all the more difficult because then when you come forward to actual incidents, people will just say, oh, maybe this is faked or, or uh, we don't believe that this is, this is the case. And then you create this cynicism and uh, it really hurts those who, uh, who have suffered from anti-Semitism and actually lets the purveyors of anti-Semitism and, and bigotry of all sorts off the hook. Betrayal of public trust. That really stood out for me, Loren. Yeah, and I think that's where people are going this morning with the idea of, okay, well, now how do we believe this? What do we do with this? 
uh, we are going to be talking to the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism that work out of the United States. They 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 get all sorts of reports from across North America and say less than one percent end up being false in their investigation. So it's a really, really small percentage of, of hate crimes that actually end up being fake or hoaxes or, or untrue. But it's those that small percent that I think people will focus on because last week there was that whole stand up Winnipeg. We can't allow this to happen. And then what? It allegedly didn't happen. And, and I think that's where people are struggling this morning. Yeah, it's damaging, isn't it? And is it damaging not just to the Jewish community, but to any marginalized I think community? So. I think so. Uh, Jussie Smollett, that case is being compared here. Uh, I'm not going to go necessarily down that road, but it's reminiscent of that for a lot of people, where that betrayal of trust, that idea that someone would go out of their way, potentially, to manufacture something like this and to use something so serious, something that clearly has galvanized the community, had it does if it turns out to be legitimate, I'm obviously mm-hmm. watching how I say this carefully because this is now a legal issue. But ha- had this been legitimate, if it was a legitimate uh, hate crime, it's clear how the community is reacting. It's it's bringing people together now in the aftermath and these charges against those who allegedly were the victims of this uh, and now are li- alleged to have perpetrated this crime. Uh, we're also seeing, unfortunately, Loren, some some well, not kind words well, in return, and, and and that's bothersome on its own. I think there was there were some people. We've had some people even react this morning, saying it's a relief in some ways because they didn't want to believe that Winnipeg would be a place to harvest this kind of hate, and so there was relief that maybe if it wasn't true and these allegations are false, then great that hate crime didn't happen. Well, guess what? Now you see this outpouring of what I would call hate on some of the owners' Facebook pages or on the cafe's Facebook pages using some really terrible language. And so you can't be relieved that there wasn't a hate crime if the hate's still being spread like that. But we begin with shock, disgust, and confusion. Those are just some of the reactions to allegations by police that an anti-Semitic hate crime at a local cafe was staged. Winnipeg police were first called to Burmex Cafe in Corden one week ago tonight. And there they found the restaurant had not only been sprayed with anti-Semitic graffiti, they found one of its owners had also been assaulted. Here's what Constable Rob Carver said then. How, how bad is this compared to what we've seen? Uh, in all the years I've been doing this job, I've actually never seen uh, an incident quite like this. Those are strong words from Winnipeg police that had the community reacting, but one individual in particular saying we maybe missed something along the way here. Marty Gold is editor of thej.ca, joins us this morning. And Marty, what did we miss in the mainstream media on this story? Uh, Good morning. First of all, I I can't take credit. It's not one individual. There are a number of people. uh, What the mainstream media has missed is, look, traditionally, uh, uh, crime reporters would follow up on crime stories by going to the source. And when there's a crime story involving an ethnic community, they would go to the ethnic media, they'd find out who they know, because they have the sources and the hookups in the communities themselves, and they'd work collaboratively, in many cases with the ethnic press, to get details onto the broader public record. And that was completely missing. We weren't the only ones at the J.ca questioning what was really behind this, uh, there other Jewish media did as well. And this was days ago. And it was all on Facebook and on the public record. And nobody from the mainstream media seemed to have looked in that direction. But there was a lot of holes in this, uh, in this situation uh, right from the beginning. And people were very skeptical. 
because things did not add up. I just want to. So, first of all, none of the allegations have been proved in court against these three accused. Uh, secondly, we here at CGOB and others reached out to the cafe owners for their comments, didn't get any feedback. And we had many members of the Jewish community come on and express their concern. And at no time, anyone expressed skepticism. But I can appreciate now in looking back in hindsight that there are questions being raised. So what were those questions at that time, Marty? Uh, the initial questions uh, were, uh, look, this went in two directions in terms of who looked at what. There was a question of whether there was some sort of, I'm just going to use a general term here, some sort of criminal extortion, uh, some kind of thuggery going on. And the anti-Semitic, uh, the spray painting was like to cover that up. Uh, another Jewish outlet went in that direction. We looked at that. We didn't think that, that, that there was a case to be made for that. I have a source that says that there was interior cameras working there as of last Wednesday. Uh, I'm seeing media reports from last night uh, that came in late that there's a claim that there's no cameras there at all. Uh, the, 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 it was, I was the first to report through the J.ca that the son claims that he found the mother. That wasn't in the initial media reports. Now, from last night's uh, uh, interviews with other media, we're hearing that he says that he got back from Home Depot at 10.30, but didn't call 911 till 10.45, and his mother was, was knocked out. I'm telling you that if my Jewish mother was unconscious, I would wait 15 minutes to call for an ambulance. And in any event... Uh, you know, for the criticisms being launched at the police a little bit, or or, or the in the way that the uh, this is being debated from that it couldn't possibly be uh, an untrue statement or whatever. Look, the police would have video from Home Depot. They're going to know whether anybody went there or not. So there was a lot of things that just simply didn't add up. And the the kinds of look, I've never seen. I went to the scene. I don't know if any of you did. I don't know how many reporters did. If a reporter looked at that and thought that's what an office. It's been tossed by Nazis looks like they really need to, to, to correct that misinformation. Well, thankfully, we don't have a lot of examples of what an office looks like that's been tossed by Nazis in this community. So the, but, the comparison and context an is not there. Tossed, an office that's been tossed in anger is not unknown to people who have been around, whether you worked in the hotel business or been in the cab industry or whatever, as I have. And that was the gentlest office tossing I've ever seen from what we could see, and we went down there, and that also reinforced this. There's a menorah, a Jewish candelabra, seemingly untouched. If somebody was in there with ill intent to Jewish people, that thing would have been knocked sideways. It would have gone flying. Marty, so there's just things that looked a little too neat and tidy. Uh, Marty, uh, we're, we're calling uh, the fact that, that this is not appearing, or at least the police are alleging that this was not a hair, hate crime and this was uh, not staged uh, a little bit of, a, of the good news out of this. But Winnipeg mm-hmm. is not Winnipeg is not immune to these things. Uh, again, it, it can't be overstated. There's One of the reasons why there was... Uh, red flags going up is for only one Jewish business to be reporting any kind of harassment. Nobody walked into other delis, uh, spray painting, knocking matzah off the shelves. So this was very targeted. And I'm telling you that, that, and we're in the field, there is things that happen, but there's no wave right now of that kind of harassment and that kind of, of vandalism. So that also made this incident just really seem to stand out and not in a good way. Is it good news that this is not an example of some uh, little mob out there that's coming after uh, Jewish community or Jewish institutions. Absolutely, it's good news. It doesn't mean people shouldn't be vigilant towards it. And it's, uh, it, it would be very, very unfortunate that people could have been misled and the police could have wasted resources. But the police certainly had questions from the start. 
and other people did, and the mainstream media should have as well. And that was my point in the, the comments that were made online earlier. The Jewish media certainly did, and were right on it, and investigating those angles, including the financial angles and the business dealings of, uh, of uh, the family involved. Marty Gold is the editor of the J.ca, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Marty, thank you for this. Thank you. Glad to be on. We want to continue with our coverage on our top story this morning involving the alleged staging of a hate crime. Yeah, and when reports first surfaced last week that members of our Jewish community and a, and a business here in Winnipeg were targeted by a hate crime, Manitobans responded with an outpouring of support, encouraging others to stand up against hate. And despite the fact that that story has changed with new allegations that that hate crime may have been a hoax, there's also hope within the community that Winnipeggers will continue to stand up against any display of hate. The question we want to ask this morning is how rare are hate crime hoaxes? Ryan Levin is the director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University and joins us now over the phone to discuss. Good morning, Ryan. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Of all the hate crimes you've looked into over the years, Brian, how many actually end up being found out to be hoaxes? Great question. Now, in criminology, we look at discovered crimes, right? So there may be more that we don't catch, but that's the same for any crime. Listen to this. In the United States last year, how many false reports of hate crime do you think we were able to uncover where there was an official report either to police or an administrative agency like a a college administrator? How many do you think we found in the U.S. last year? Handful? Are you talking about how many were hoaxes? So seven were hoaxes out of how many? Well, the FBI doesn't have their data out. Uh, we have data. We're estimating about 77 to 7,800. So there you go. Seven out of an estimated 7,700, 7,800. The year before, uh, we found, I think it was 22, and the FBI reported uh, just under 7,200 hate crimes. So obviously that's a, a, a very infinitesimal amount uh, with regard to the, the number of hate crimes. How devastating, though, can a situation like we are potentially experiencing here in Winnipeg, where there's the allegation that this has been a hoax and has been uh, put on, how devastating can it be in terms of combating hate crimes overall? Great question. And, and, and the first thing that we understand about studying crime is that people change their behaviors based on their perceived risk. And hate crime cuts in a really jagged way uh, through communities where one victim group thinks that they have a heightened risk of victimization and they feel that it's coming from another category of offenders that's quite broad. So bottom line is these are not great. And that's why I think for those folks who are doing this, uh, they should have the book thrown at them. Well, let's talk the ones a, who do the false reports. Let's talk a bit more about that, because that was one of the questions raised here in, in Winnipeg yesterday. Um, again, none of the allegations have been proven in court, but the charges are public mischief. And some people have come out and said, is that enough, given the damage that this could do to people who are, who are victims of crime and want to see this taken really seriously? What kind of punishment should we be talking about? Well, you know, because that this is an ongoing case, I rather speak in generalities, lest I be accused. I'm also a, uh, an attorney here in California of unduly influencing uh, a, a, a trial that I'm not a part of. But let me just say generally, 
Um, the same kind of damage to uh, civil cohesion, at least in the intermediate to short term, uh, occurs when communities feel that they're under attack. And the fact that it later turns out to be fraudulent doesn't relieve that offender for having certainly the moral responsibility of, of making people feel terrorized. So uh, if you do it intentionally because you want to terrorize Jewish people, okay. But if you also do it for some other motive, but the effect is the same, uh, I think there should be uh, significant punishment. Yeah, there are a lot of people saying that the the crime or the or the potential uh, punishment may equal what might have happened to an individual who was found to have perpetrated this sort of hate crime in the first place. I don't know if 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 that matches up, but it's certainly something that's being discussed in our community right now. Brian, tell us how, boy. It's unfortunate that your area of study has to exist in the first place. How busy are you these days? It feels as though the United States is as, as divided as ever. Um, it, it is crazy. And let me just say, like, if, if there are students that are listening and you've written, uh, and I haven't gotten back, you write again. Um, we, ha- we, we just had legislative hearings here in California. Uh, I was up there for that testifying. There are other hearings coming out here domestically in the United States with regard to uh, domestic terrorism, homeland security. So um, we're incredibly busy. We're the most busy we've been. I, I've been home hardly any time this month, um, and we're coming out with a new report. Interestingly, just, just to get it, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find my, my, my Canada stats that we have in our report that's coming out. Um, interestingly enough, just hear this out, Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, of which Canada and the United States are signatories, uh, we looked at, I think, 13 countries just out of, like, Western Europe and Canada, and nearly all of them were up. Canada, from 2016 to 2017, was up 47% to 2073. We're waiting for StatsCan to come out with their, their new data, and as soon as they do, we'll, we'll be on it. But Germany up, Greece up, Hungary, UK, Poland, uh, all up, and Canada. So what we're seeing is uh, a couple of a couple of things, and it's affecting Canada as well. So just give me a second. And just to be clear, uh, sorry, Brian, what? you're talking about a rise. You're talking about numbers related to hate crimes. So 273, the number of reported hate crimes in Canada in 2017. 2073. Okay. So go ahead. 2073, up from 1409 uh, in 2016. So yes, thank you. Um, uh, and you know, Canada is known as a tolerant country. Indeed, you know, I oftentimes use Canada as a model when I go around the world talking about doing things right. And, and indeed, an old friend of mine, Dino Doria, used to, uh, used to be at the hate crime unit in Toronto. Um, and Canada has really led much of the world in responding to hate crime. But the problem is we're seeing a couple of things. Dramatic demographic changes in, in countries here in North America and, and Western Europe. Uh, and we're also seeing the rise of Euro or white nationalism and immigration as an issue. On top of that, really briefly, two other quick things. One is the growth and fragmentation of the Internet, particularly with regard to these affinity-based platforms uh, that, that attract certain types of users like Gab, for instance, or 4chan. Bottom line is, when you, when you look at the white nationalism, you look at the Internet and how that's affecting social relations, and on top of that, 
we are very fragmented sociopolitically. That creates an interesting stew, an interesting cauldron. And we're seeing not only hate crimes go up, but we're seeing a, a shift with regard to political violence generally. One other quick thing that I would encourage my friends in Canada to do that we did here in California, we're looking to protect homeless under hate crime statutes. And I think that's something uh, Canadians should examine as well. And yeah, how do you do that? What, do you, what's the, what does that protection involve? Like, for instance, here in, the, here in the United States, Los Angeles, less than 1% of the population is homeless, yet 16% of the homicides. And what we're seeing are people who are in wheelchairs, set on fire, uh, women raped and then murdered. Uh, also, people uh, rolled into uh, carpeting and thrown into rivers and drowned. So that it's overkill. And we're seeing some of this done not just because these victims are vulnerable, but because of prejudice against these folks. And uh, we just had Utah pass a statute uh, just last month adding homeless. Uh, Florida has it, Maryland. I would encourage folks in Canada to take a look. We found here in the United States, listen to this. We tried to, uh, along with the National Coalition for the Homeless, we at Cal State, National Coalition for the Homeless, uh, tried to look at those homicides of homeless people done by domiciled folks where there wasn't another apparent motive like robbery, drug deal gone bad, or personal animus. And we came up with over about 18 years, about 476. And some of them might be over-included. That's fine. But compared to the homicides of all hate crime by the FBI, less than 200. Before we let you go, Brian, I just want to quickly mention you're talking about hate crimes being up in terms of the numbers you've seen in Canada and Europe and the United States. You've said about less than 1% of hate crimes reported that you've investigated were found out to be false, and yet it's the false that is going to continue to dominate the headlines. Do you feel like you'd be fighting a losing battle in some respects for people to take this seriously when these very small uh, cases of hoaxes come up? Look, these, 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 these hoax cases come up, but if you look, even at the, the things that are being promoted on the Internet and in some books, if you go through the data, like there's a website that looks at false hate crimes, they, they overcount. They include things that weren't hate crimes. They include commentaries in newspapers. Bottom line is we're seeing a very small number, and it's folks like you that get the truth out of what criminologists do. We have a very small number of these reports, but we do find they increase around the times that hate crimes spike as well. So, for instance, around political events and also quite a few on college campuses of that, of that number. But out of the seven that we had last year, I think all of them were young people, teenagers, students. Brian Levin, thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you. Right now, we want to kind of have a follow-up chat on what we were discussing earlier this week when I went to Value Village over the weekend to buy a pair of pants for golf and found 35 bucks in the pocket. <laughs> so it just, just so happens there is an event this weekend involving thrift shops, and it's Thrive Thrift Shop, partnering with Fashion Revolution Winnipeg for a clothing swap and fashion show at the Forks. And it sounds like a lot of fun. And in studio, we have two guests with us. In studio, we have with us Christy McCoskey, who is the manager of Thrive Thrift Shop. And on the phone, we have Catherine Mine from Fashion Revolution Winnipeg. So, Christy, why don't we start with you? Thrive sure. Thrift Shop. What is it? Is part of a larger organization in the West End called Thrive Community Support Circle. So we have four components to the agency. We offer uh, free therapy to the community. We have a uh, child care center where people can afford child care so they can go to work. Um, 
We have a resource center that offers everything from pre and postnatal support, emergency food and baby supplies, crisis support, men's group, and then the stores, the fourth component. We have about 50 volunteers who run the store in the warehouse every day and, uh, or sorry, every month. And those people are mostly looking for work experience and they could have intellectual, physical disabilities. We have newcomers coming in uh, to practice their English, uh, get comfortable with how things work in Canada, uh, get used to currency. And then we also have people who live in the area who don't work for various reasons, people getting over a mental health crisis, uh, people who just want to volunteer to give back, yeah, and just, people actually doing their community su- service I hours lo- as well. I love the fact mm-hmm. that you call it community s- support mm-hmm. circle because it's exactly what it feels like. So it's almost self. It's a self-sustaining enterprise to a great extent. And each department works with all the other departments. So I have people who come in who want to gain work experience, but because of their mental health issue of you know, uh, I'll say to them, you know. We really need to work on this. So why don't you go visit our therapist and she'll help you with, I don't know, like customer service skills, how to address people who walk in the store, how to be friendly, how to talk. Like I deal with a lot of people with really high anxiety too. So, or, um, you know, if they need to do their volunteer hours, they can drop their child off at the childcare for free. So it's, we all work together to support the, the individual or the family. You're tapping into a need into the community, I think, from mental health to daycare. But then at the end of the day, there's also a thrift store to which I think yeah, is, we're seeing a growing number of those right across this country. And I don't know what it is if just we're looking for better deals or there's a recognition out there that um, we can give away our stuff to these stores or also go in and buy. What What's happening on that part of the business end or at least the community end that has us all buying into the thrift store structure more? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm a big thrifter. I just, you know, what I hear from people who love to thrift is they love the hunt and they love finding the special treasure. Our thrift shop, because I I thrift a lot, I know that our thrift shop is the the most affordable in the city by far. And we do that purposefully to, so that we allow the community to be able to afford clothing, coffee makers, furniture, whatever they need. Um, I think a lot of people like what we do, so they want to support us mm. uh, to support the community. And um, yeah, I'm not sure why people love, like, I just think that they love the hunt. For myself as well, when I go to the mall, I feel like stores are sort of telling me what to wear. And when I go to a thrift shop, I can choose the outfits. There's a little bit more creativity behind shopping and my wardrobe. I was wondering too, like for myself personally, I feel like we're in this age where we can cons- we consume so much and we buy so much, and so the thrift stores have also thrived, no pun intended, because because of the idea that we because we have so much now, we're also looking for a place to put it, and we feel guilty that we just might chuck it in the landfill, yes. and so we're thinking, you know, what if I can reuse it in some way, I can feel better about that as well. Yeah, and and shopping too. So if I buy something at the thrift shop and I'm helping you know, someone, helping something and I accidentally shrink it in the dryer or I get bored of it, I don't feel bad about passing it on. And also uh, when you get used to thrifting, you get used to thrifting prices. And so then when you go to the mall and you see a really nice plain shirt, uh, you don't really want to pay $35. I find uh, that the quality of items in the mall have gone down, but the prices have gone up and I'm not happy with that. So you've got a clothing swap this weekend that you've partnered with Fashion Revolution Winnipeg, and we'll speak to uh, Catherine from Fashion Revolution in a moment. But you did this swap last year. Yeah. Uh, was it also at the Forks last year? No, it was actually in a, in a building called Soul Sanctuary in White Ridge, and so off Waverly. So it's a, it a bit of an odd location, uh, but it was a really it's a beautiful 
facility to use. So you bring your clothes and then you can just, how does it work? Yeah. So if you have clothes to purge, you can go through your closet, your garage, your Tupperware bins, whatever, you know, if you're bored of things, you don't have to bring clothes as well. So you just bring what you want to donate. And we have volunteers that are going to set them up and sort them and put them on the tables. And so there's going to be a jean table and a, a jacket and accessories and and all sorts of different clothing. And then, yeah, you literally just take as much as you want. Hmm. Well, Catherine Mine from Fashion Revolution Winnipeg is on the phone. Catherine, this is part of Fashion Revolution Week. What is that? Mm-hmm. Fashion Revolution Week is uh, a global movement that started in 2014, uh, which was the anniversary of the Rana Plaza collapse in 2013, uh, which killed just over 1,100 garment workers. And it's an idea of connecting the people that buy the clothes with the people that make the clothes in a really human way so that we are appreciating not only the beautiful clothing, but caring for and asking for more accountability for the people who actually make them. I think uh, one of the words that was used in the news release that caught my eye was the idea of challenging fast fashion. And I know you can go to almost any store now. You go to a grocery store, there's clothes there. You go to like a bar and they might have clothes. Go to a Dollarama, you buy clothes. So it's all these places now have clothes. And I think part of the problem is our expectation is, I don't want to pay more than $11 for the shirt. Well, for an $11 shirt, how is it being made and who's making it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, that's addressed ab- directly in the documentary that we just screened last night. Um, and many of the people coming out had seen it for the first time and were really, really emotional. Um, so I just told them, you know, take a couple days because once you know how extensive the problem is, not only the human capital content uh, problem, but the environment and how it all works together, um, it is it can be really overwhelming and you can be paralyzed. Um, So I really love that we have the swaps coming up so that the people were coming out like, what can I do? I was like, you can go to the swap (laughs) instead of the mall. That's what you can do today, this week, um, in order to make a difference. Are we talking about the concern with child labor or seeing labels that come from certain countries and and not stopping to think about the cost or, or the human cost that went into those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, most of the country, well, the countries that they highlighted in the film anyway, uh, were China, Bangladesh, uh, Cambodia, India, uh, and that had to do with both the agricultural uh, practices in those com- in those countries as well as the labor practices. Um, so they did follow one garment worker with her child who, you know, she can't actually be with her child because she can't, it's not safe for her in the factory. She has no place to keep her in the big city. And so she has to send her back to her village. So she only sees her kid once a year. Um, and these are the people who are making the clothes for, you know, 30 cents or so often we look at a situation like that and go, what can I do? I'm powerless to do mm-hmm. anything about this. This gut does give us a, a, a little bit of an opportunity to have a say, to reduce our footprint uh, globally and to, and to do something great for the community. There are really uh, several layers of benefit here when we participate this way. Yeah, I agree completely. Now, Christy, we have about 60 seconds left, so the event is happening at the Forks. Uh, Are you excited that it's at the Forks and that you've partnered with Fashion Revolution Winnipeg? 
Oh yeah, I remember seeing the Rana collapse, the the Rana Plaza collapse years ago, and feeling so hopeless and angry and frustrated, and thinking one day I'm going to do something about it. And so when I found out about Fashion Revolution, I instantly wanted to be a part of it. Didn't know how. I'm personally, I'm just dipping my toe into how how like like what um, what Fashion Revolution is all about, the education. And so I'm a little finding like I don't want to overwhelm people, but I want to open their eyes to what's going on. And I think this is a fun and educational way without them having to walk away and feeling overwhelmed. Well, if you want more mm-hmm. information, you can get it at theforks.com. There's also information on the events at eventbrite.ca. Fashion Revolution Winnipeg events with Thrive Thrift Shop. The clothing swap this weekend at the Forks as well as a fashion show. The fashion show and clothing swap VIP night is tomorrow. And then the clothing swap is Saturday from 10 until 3. Christy McCoskey, manager of Thrive Thrift Shop, and Catherine Mying from Fashion Revolution Winnipeg. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you. Last year, we brought your attention to an abandoned billboard at the intersection of Portage Avenue and Sherbrooke Street. That billboard has now been repurposed and features images promoting the Winnipeg Art Gallery. Yeah, and just down the street at Portage and Lipton, you may have seen a billboard which would be commonplace in a certain destination. We're looking at you, Vegas. (laughs) In Winnipeg, it is causing a stir. Lots of people asking, is this legal? It advertises for an escort named Sensational Serena, Winnipeg's professional companion. I know many people have been asking, how can they do that here? That's why we reached out and to find out what the process was like. And it is legal, and it tells how Winnipeg got introduced to its first billboard for a licensed escort. Richard and Julie welcomed Serena herself into the studio yesterday afternoon. It's been around for a while. I am fully licensed. Um, This is just, yeah, it's a new thing to be on a billboard, but it's definitely within the legalities of the bylaw. So You're a licensed escort. What does that mean? It means I provide companionship for a certain period of time, acting as a date, and that's also right in the bylaw as well. Is it difficult to get licensed? Um, There's some steps you've got to take to do so, and, um, you know, it does cost money as well, and you do have to apply, go by their rules and everything like that, but, you know, it's not impossible. I have one, so... Was it difficult to figure out the legalities of the billboard itself? They were very helpful. They just said they, that sensual wasn't, they didn't look, agree with that. And so so you couldn't do sensual, but right. you could do sensational. That's correct. But you're still sensual. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. The billboard's a legitimate avenue for me to advertise. And so, you know, it's obviously it's got some response so that's good it's been effective maybe maybe next i'll do a radio spot who knows are you surprised at at the at the response not really i kind of had an idea that it was gonna turn some heads that's part of the reason i did it i guess it's like i want to raise awareness too that it is a thing a lot of people weren't even aware of that so well and i think i think that's the case and and you know, when when you go to your website, as many of us did, and I saw that uh, I think that the tagline is you're Winnipeg's only licensed escort with a billboard. Mm-hmm. And how, how many escorts are there in Winnipeg? Do, do we even know? I can't speak to the number, but I believe there are several. Um, yeah, there's quite a few. But you dial that number, you go to the website, and, you know, I have to ask you straight out here. Yes, it's one thing to be in the escort business for dates, but is this not just something that, in the end, you're selling sex in a different way? 
I'm I'm providing companionship, and that's all I'm really going to say towards that. <laughs> Have you had any backlash from it? Um, I mean, your 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 cell phone number is on a billboard. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty out there. Um, most people are actually quite supportive. I've had a lot of people contact me saying way to go it's like it's about time someone did something like this um haven't had too much backlash yet in negative any negative ways so so far everyone seems to be on board that i've spoken to how long have you been part of the escort business how long have you been sensational serena well i have had my license since 2009 and i was going by sensual until it was brought to my attention that that's they didn't like that, and that's fine. Sensational. I am sensational, so I guess I've always been sensational, Serena. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to cjob.com. Find it in the audio vault. They were She was on with Rich and Julie at 4.09 yesterday afternoon. And there were questions, right, about what, what, what are the services being provided there, what's being advertised. Winnipeg Police saying that the current wording of that billboard doesn't violate the doing business in Winnipeg bylaw, and it doesn't specifically advertise nude or sexual services, and so as a result... Perfectly legit. And some other people asking, why are you having this person on? You're just giving them free advertising. We had and have been chasing this story for weeks now because some people were wondering, is it legitimate? Is it legal? How can this be done? How can it be advertised in Winnipeg? And we owed it to those people to answer those questions and to share the story. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, when the weather... Finally starts to turn and warm up after winter. There, There's one word, I think, that mm-hmm. comes to mind for so many Winnipeggers and Southern Manitobans, and that's patio. And the one that's being talked about at the Forks, uh, I think, is going to have a lot of Winnipeggers excited. Uh, they're expanding the huge space down there to include up to 250 people for a licensed patio outside. And to tell us more, we're joined by Claire Mackay, the VP of Strategic Initiatives and Executive Director with the Forks. Good morning, Claire. Good morning. So what are we talking about here? We know that we've done great changes to what's now known as the common area in the Forks, where you can sit at a table, order a glass of wine or a different beer. What are we, we, we basically moving that outside? Yeah, that's exactly it. We're taking the common outside just in time for summer. So describe to us what the vision is. What would that look like? So it's it's very similar. I think um, one of the great things about the common is, is that it's open and accessible to everybody. So you can come in, have a glass of wine, a beer, grab some food, or you can just come in and sit and be part of a communal long harvest table. So think of that outside. So we're taking, um, we're adding a bar outside. We'll be serving the same 20 beers and wines that are curated quarterly by a Canadian sommelier. And then we're adding 250 seats outside and, and beautiful seats, you know, long harvest tables made of wood, beautiful lighting, music, you know, pretty much the entire package that you're looking for when you're looking for somewhere to sit and specifically enjoy the view of the rivers. So, Claire, uh, lots of people have fallen in love with the common and the changes that have taken place inside the food court. There are those that have, you know, had their concerns about the changing face of the forks, and it's, quote-unquote, not the way it was, the the way it used to be, and, and some people aren't uncomfortable with change. Tell us the effect the common has had on the forks marketplace itself and, and why this continued change is a part of the forks' overall success. Well, I think one of the the greatest things that's happened over the last couple of years is that, one, we've seen our visitation increase. So we're up about 25% 
from this time last year. That includes winter and summer numbers. Um, We've really embraced the idea of local entrepreneurs, um, you know, the new food offerings that are available in the market, as well as those those tenants who've been with us for a very long time. We're really just upping the game um, and making us more open and accessible to everybody. Um, I think that what people can expect to see is, is more of that. And what's really great about change is that it sort of signals to to locals, but also to tourists, that there's something really interesting here and there's a reason to keep coming down. Was there any sort of single event or impetus to, to launch this? Like what prompted this idea to create this patio? Well, we, we did have um, several restaurants that left for, for different reasons, um, just just before the winter. And so we were left with the idea that maybe there wouldn't be patios ringing that area known as the canopy. And so we really acted quite quickly and put together a plan to make sure that we did have patio seating and a place for locals to gather this summer. We're talking about a concept here, though. I don't think we might be familiar with it in other cities, but this is going to be pretty unique to Manitoba. In theory, I would buy, I could buy a drink inside, walk outside with it, Claire, or have it outside and be able to walk amongst different spaces. You're not really allowed to do that in, at hardly anywhere, I think, in this country, right. let alone Manitoba. Right. So we have a unique hospitality license, and um, we've been working really closely with the Liquor and Gaming Authority. And so we have a unique hospitality license inside, which means that you can walk anywhere with your drink or your food um, in the market, not only on the first floor, but also the second floor. And now we're extending that idea outside. So it's kind of hard to describe on the radio um, exactly what we're talking about, but it's the entire upper plaza area. So if you walk in your pancake house, you'll be able to move all the way towards the first set of stairs down towards the river. So it is really unique. Um, it just gives people that idea of free flowing, um, being able to wander, to, to look. Um, but also what's great about that is just like the common inside, you don't have to buy a thing. So there's no barriers. There's no, you know, you don't have to be on somebody's patio ordering food in order to be able to experience this space. You can just come in um, and sit and enjoy. So you can order nothing. You can buy an ice cream. You can sit with your family. You can grab a beer. It really just um, sort of ups the game of, of what we can offer here. And not only is it unique in Winnipeg and Manitoba, but it, I think this may be the only one of its kind in Canada. Well, are you anticipating any pushback on that, Claire? We, we have to ask the, the flip side of the question. The Forks is a family place. Do you think there are people who are going to be uncomfortable with this notion? Um, you know, we've, we've done this with the Common now for almost two years. Um, I would say at the very outset, we thought maybe there might be. We've had none. We, and in fact, I would say that from our tenants' perspective, from the surveys that we do, not only have we not received pushback, we've become a much more family-friendly place. We see a demographic that maybe we hadn't been seeing before. We see multi-generations. Uh, we see younger people. Uh, we see families with kids. It's just part of a bigger experience. It's not the only part of the experience, but this communal nature and the idea of a meeting place for all really seems to have captured people's attentions, and we're thrilled with that. Now, you say the wine is going to be uh, curated quarterly by a Canadian sommelier. I am not a wine expert, but I do like wine. Uh, But sitting outside on a hot day, I don't really think of wine first. Is there such a thing as a summery wine? Like, will you have wine selection that's sort of geared towards warmer weather? We have a, again, we have a, a Somali who's, who curates this quarterly. Her 
her name's Veronique Rive. She's actually in today changing over our list uh, for this quarter. Um, and she looks at wines that are, you know, um, really interesting, have great flavor, great taste that pair well with our foods that pair well seasonally. So she takes all of that into account. And then, of course, for those who don't drink wine or don't feel like drinking it outside, we've got 20 great beers. I want to sum this up with one word, and that is rosé. Oh, I like rosé. Okay. Well, change is is good. It's uncomfortable for some folks, but the evolution of the forks is so exciting. And and to to see the new ideas and the the changes being implemented, I think, is only a good thing for the long-term health of uh, the most popular tourist attraction in our city. Claire Mackay, always a pleasure. Thank you for this. Thank you. Thank you. One of the fun parts of our job is we get books that come across our desk from time to time. And I go back to my desk after the show a couple of days ago, and there's a book with a cute little dog on the front. I don't even know what kind of dog would you say that is, Greg? Uh, I don't know. Is it a bull terrier? It's a bull or a Boston terrier? It's a Frenchie. French bulldog. That, that is our guest. He is the author of this book. This little French, what, sorry, what did you say? A French, French bulldog? French bulldog, yeah. Has a thermometer it. sticking out of its Aww. mouth. It's Aww. the accidental veterinarian, Tales from a Pet Practice, from Philip Schott. He is the author of this book and a veterinarian right here in Winnipeg at Birchwood in St. James near Portage and Moray. And he will be at McNally Robinson tonight at 7.30 in the atrium for the launch of the accidental veterinarian. Philip, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Oh, thank you. So are you excited for tonight for the launch? Yeah, I am. You know, the usual excited and nervous and all those things. Yeah. Now, how long did it take you to put this book together? A uh, couple of years. Uh, it mostly comes from a blog that I wrote over a couple of years and then added some material, little bits and pieces, you know, <clears throat> write for a couple of hours every week or so. Let's cool. start with the title, The Accidental Veterinarian. Are you an accidental vet? Stumbled I am upon absolutely that? an accidental okay, vet. That how doesn't so? mean I have accidents in my practice. <laughs> but means that's you, good didn't, to know. you weren't intending to become one? Exactly. So my profession is full of... People that, as small children, wanted to be veterinarians as soon as they knew what a veterinarian was, kind of like kids wanting to be astronauts or firefighters. That's like 98% of us. I was a confused child and teenager, had lots of interests, didn't really know, didn't have any pets growing up. So when I hit grade 12, and needed to, I knew I was headed to university. I went through the university catalog, literally A through Z at the University of Saskatchewan, started with anthropology, rejected, rejected one after another, hit theology, rejected and thought, God, there better be something after this. And it was veterinary medicine. That was the last thing in the university calendar. And I thought, huh, this could be okay. I like animals. Why not? So what is the, what is the most interesting thing you've, you've learned on this journey? I always marvel at the changing relationships, the changing roles that animals play in our lives. Our, our pets have just become extensions of our family. I think that they've been that for some time, but uh, there was always that distinction. Is he an outdoor dog or an indoor mm-hmm. dog? Yeah. You, don't, you don't get a lot of that now. Uh, dogs and cats and other animals are just extensions of our family. It's much more mainstream now to talk about them being fur babies or members of the family and so forth. Really, I feel like I'm practicing furry pediatrics sometimes. And when I talk to my kid's pediatrician, we have a lot in common, actually. You write in your preface to your book about the idea that being a vet is a story machine because you've had men admit that they cried over the loss of their dog more than they did their father. Women say they laugh more with their cat than they do with some of their closest friends. And so it can be a pretty heartwarming and heartbreaking place to work. It's very emotional. It's often very emotional. It can be hard on us as veterinarians um, to 
confront that emotion on a regular basis. But, but it it's shows also, the role the animal plays yeah, in people's lives. Yeah, absolutely, life. absolutely. Um, it, it also shows that veterinary medicine is really a people business that happens to involve animals rather than an mm. animal business that happens to involve people. Human People are often at their most human around animals, oddly enough. Are people still reluctant, though, to, to go to the vet? Because I hear commonly, oh, you know, I should probably take my dog in, but it's uh, 150 bucks as soon as yeah. I walk through the door. Absolutely. Um, the statistics are out there that roughly a quarter of dogs don't see a veterinarian regularly, like more than a year between visits and half of cats. And that's just on, on in a poll, and people probably are under-reporting because they're going to give an answer that they think is socially acceptable. So, yeah, there's lots out there that we don't see, unfortunately. Should you be bringing, sorry, Greg, it's should okay. you be bringing your animals in every year for a checkup, like you go see the doctor? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you got to realize that animals age much more rapidly than we do. So for me to say, take your dog to the vet every year is like your doctor saying to you, come to me every five or six years. That would seem like a pretty long gap. It's interesting because we always talk about those dog years and those cat years, and I always wonder if that's accurate or not. Uh, you open the can of worms, yeah. so I'll dump the worms <laughs> on the table. Is that accurate? It, it's tough. The math is tough. Um, large dogs, you can use um, roughly that's the classic seven times multiplier. Mm-hmm. Smaller dogs, you go more for the five. Cats, we would say five, like a 16-year-old cat is like an 80-year-old person. Wow. Mm. But, yeah, it's it's a rough thing. Explains but, their behavior then. Yeah, Some yeah. of those cats are yeah, just old lethargic. and cranky. Yeah, and cranky too. <laughs> uh, uh, this whole idea, there's a, a lot of conversation people have with regard to the type of care that's available for animals versus human mm-hmm. beings. Uh, it, it's kind of carte blanche, right, with, a, with an animal. Uh, pay for the services that you want. And there are a lot of people that say uh, that pets actually and animals have it better than we do in terms of those options. You, you come across that yeah, conversation? Yeah, no, uh, particularly what I specifically do, a lot of my practice is ultrasound referrals. I use a human ultrasound machine. There's nothing different about it. Training is very similar that way. And if you need an ultrasound for your for your dog tomorrow, yeah, I'm working tomorrow. I can get you in tomorrow and it's done and you know, cash at the front desk. It's um, it's like private health care for, for, for pets. Um, all the pros and cons that come with that, but it does mean, um, but it does mean the people that are able to pay get get access quickly. I mean, that's it's got its downside, of course, too. You have a, your book uh, at the Accidental Veterinarian includes stories and and it, uh, of pet ownership over the years, but it also has a couple of things that I have to point out that I read just at the beginning, which yeah. was one about how to. Um, prevent your very handy dog from opening a fridge. So that's the scenario I'm guessing you encountered. What's the story there? Yeah, I mean, this is pretty unusual. This is a remarkable dog. This guy was so obsessed with getting the family roast. So, you know, stole it from the table once. Okay, that's straightforward. That happens pretty frequently. Stole it from the fridge, was able to figure out how to open the fridge and got into the meat there. This dog also opened the oven with the roast in there, and somehow managed to swing his paw and swat it in such a way not to get a burn, (laughs) scarf it down. But he's a real short-term thinker, because he should have realized each time this happens, he ends up in the clinic with an inflamed pancreas and needing to be on IV and so forth. But, you know, the short term... Because he shouldn't have eaten the whole... No, 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 that's that's terrible for their digestive system. Too Too much meat, too much fat all at once. 
causes pancreatitis. What are some of the most um, unknown facts that everyone should know, know if they own a dog in particular? I know I had to take my little shih tzu to uh, the clinic. Of course, it was on a Sunday afternoon, yeah, yeah. right? And I had to pay the premium on the Sunday. She was foaming from her mouth and I thought, oh my gosh, I was painting or staining something. Oh, geez, what if she got in the stain? Long story short, she's got white fur. Mm-hmm. And so the veterinarian said, if she had been in the stain, you would know because her mustache <laughs> is like a paintbrush. So she didn't yeah. touch that. It was, it was a grape or a raisin. And yeah. I had no idea that grapes and raisins were just potentially poison uh, for dogs. Are there yeah. so, some other foods like that yeah. that we, we don't really think about as potentially poisoning our animals with? No, that's an excellent point. A lot of people don't know the grape and raisin thing. So there's one. It's what we call idiosyncratic. So some animals are sensitive, some are not. You don't want to find out the hard way. But a big one is xylitol. So this is um, a sugar substitute. Almost all chewing gum has xylitol in it. Um, so that's and very what poisonous. Pardon me? Like it could kill? The- oh, yeah. 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 Shuts down their kidneys. Um, so relatively common, something we encounter relatively frequently because most people are not aware. And, and chocolate, is that is that a yeah. similar situation? Yeah, so or chocolate, different? I think a lot of people know that chocolate is poisonous. It depends on the amount and it depends on the intensity. So dark chocolate that has that really strong chocolate flavor, it's the stimulant in there. There's something called theobromine that's similar to caffeine. They don't metabolize it very quickly, so it accumulates in their body and they can start to get jitters, like if you had too much coffee, to the point of having seizures, to the point potentially of death if they get way too much. Now, I've got two cats at home and we try to clip their nails, just simple things yeah. like that. And it's near impossible because cats are cranky <laughs> and I don't want to be on the butt end of those claws. Yeah, so yeah. when you have to deal with animals when they get cantankerous, especially ones like cats that right. have no problem taking a shot at you. Uh, how do you protect yourself? Uh, the nurses do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great strategy. <laughs> you know, they, um, we have cat whispers working for us. They just know how to go with the flow. You know, they, with a cat, you cannot, as you allude to, you can't force something. So you kind of read the cat and know just how much to hold and so forth. However, there are going to be situations where you have to put on the leather gauntlets to protect yourself from getting bitten More and more these days, we want to try and avoid those rodeos, though. So if we know a patient is going to be like that, then we're going to suggest sedation, just something just kind of the Valium type of thing, just to take the edge off. Why stress the poor thing out, just have its nails done. So. You actually have leather gauntlets that you have to put oh, We on? do, yeah. Welder's gloves kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe wow. you should just get a pair of those. That would be helpful, Brett. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a great idea yeah. because we need to get those nails cut. The cats, they keep hooking into my pants and wrecking my clothes. You need a nurse. They actually, well, there you go. You need staff. <laughs> I tell you, staff are great. Now, what is, I, you know, I've, there, another line from your book was about a fish who swallowed another fish yeah. and saving that fish. I'd like to hear more about that story, but also, like, is that one of the weirder things that you've had to encounter? That's one of the weirder things. I had a, not that long ago, a massive python come in. Like, oh, massive. God. Like, five, six meters long. It took four or five people to hold it in, to carry it, kind of cradled in their arms. Weighed 200 pounds. It's for ultrasound. I had to. This um, is in Winnipeg. Yeah, yeah. Great. <laughs> so you had to put it in the in the machine. No. So the ultrasound has a has I a would have has loved a wand to have seen like it's a, it's a hand. Like... Yeah, there, there's a little. It just yeah it lays there. Um, the whole yeah. length of the room. I think the tail. We had to open one of the doors for the. Oh my and then word. It was to try and find the heart. And you'd think you know I would skilled veterinarian. I should know where the heart. Is. 
No, it's just one long tube. I have no idea where the heart is yeah, in this I'm thing. I'm sorry. So you went to a Saskatchewan school. How often did Python <laughs> come up in the training? No kidding. So what was the problem with the Python? Uh, it had a mass beside its heart, unfortunately. Oh. We think it might have swallowed a, I'm trying to remember now, a whole chicken or a whole mouse or something, and the... And a bone might have pierced the, the esophagus, the food tube, and caused us a swelling there. And oh. That's what we think happened. So how do you stay on top of all of the different animals you have to see? Because doctors see people. Right. But you see pythons and cats and dogs and God knows what else, fish eating other fish. How do you yeah. navigate all of that? The internet. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the special veterinary internet, we actually have something called the Veterinary Information Network. So it's a subscriber service. It's a lifesaver, really. In the old days, textbooks, right? Mm-hmm. But they get out of date pretty fast. So we subscribe to the service, and then we can just quickly post a question to a specialist and say, okay, I've seen this. What on earth do I do? And so that's very helpful. Continuing education for our licenses requ- required to have a certain number of hours. I was at a conference in Florida a couple of years ago. When one of the things on offer was hippopotamus medicine made easy. Oh. So there are a number of problems with that, right? Hippopotamus easy. I can't imagine that it's possible. Mm. I didn't go to that, right? I, to the no best of my knowledge, there are no, to the best you're, of my knowledge, no. You're going to uh, rue the day you did because one of these days now, just a hippopotamus is waddling up to the clinic. <laughs> Well, you can make your way to McNally Robinson tonight for the launch of the Accidental Veterinarian Tales from a Pet Practice. It's at 7.30 tonight in the atrium with Philip Schott, veterinarian at Birchwood in St. James near Portage and Moray. Philip, thanks for coming in. We appreciate the visit. Thank you very much. Lots of fun. Thanks, Philip. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.